I'd like you to turn to Joshua chapter 21. Our text is going to be chapter 22. While you're turning there, I just want to give a shout out to the people downstairs. We, we gather in the sanctuary, same thing in the first service, and we kind of look around and think, well, this is the church. We, we actually have a good number of people in the second service that sit downstairs. But I also want to recognize that we have a number of people around the world that listen to us online. We actually have four times more downloads in Germany than we do in the United States. We don't know who these people are. If you're listening, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. We have a number of people in England, Greece, Ireland, United Kingdom, Canada. We have people, a group of people in New Jersey that download us every week, and a number in California and Texas. So hello to you people out there in the world. We, we love you, and thanks for listening to us. And if you get a chance at the end of this service, people here in the sanctuary, we're having a luncheon downstairs. You can come downstairs and meet the folks who meet down there as well. So a good time for fellowship. I want to read to you Joshua chapter 22 this morning. We're going to cover 21, but I want to read this text in 22 because it's pertinent to the message. Joshua 22, 1 through 34. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You've kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I've commanded you. You've not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, Turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, and to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock and with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, with much clothing, Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have, have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-drive of Manasseh, 
in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, uh, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, He knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from the following of the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord Himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion with the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. When Phineas, the priest, and the Chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel, who were with him, heard the words of the, that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord 
Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, uh, the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Word of God, brothers and sisters. Let me ask you a question this morning, loved ones. What is truth? What is truth? Elder Ashby read from John chapter 18. In that chapter, Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. He's in the final hours of his ministry, uh, very close to the cross. And Pilate asked him if he was a king. And Jesus responded by saying, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, do you remember Pilate's response to Jesus? It's there in verse 38 in John. It's the next verse. He says, what is truth? And in, in, in giving that answer, he reveals one of the great struggles of all mankind. See, Pilate was really saying, who knows what the truth is? Who, who knows what truth is? He was admitting that the truth to an unsaved, unregenerated, untransformed man is a moving target, and it always has been. As long as there have been records of what man has done, as long as there's been a recorded history of mankind, we've seen that men's perception of the truth is ever-changing. It's ever-evolving. It changes over time. It changes over cultures. It changes over geography. It's dependent upon who's perceiving it. It's dependent upon when they're perceiving it. And it's dependent upon where they perceive it. So I'm here to tell you something important this morning. The truth doesn't change. The truth is absolute. It is dependent upon nothing but the word of God and the character and nature of God. And we get ourselves in a whole bunch of trouble when we look for truth anywhere other than in God. So we have to deal with truth on that basis. The only way that we can find absolute truth, the only way we can find any truth of any value is going to be in God. We have to deal with truth on that basis, not this floaty, fuzzy, touchy-feely type of truth that floats around out there. Well, what's true for you is not true for me, and, and that might not be true for someone else over there. So that leaves us with two ways that we can address truth in our life. And we see them in chapter 21 and in chapter 22. In chapter 21, we are going to see truth ignited, truth set aflame. And in chapter 22, we're going to see truth ignored. Truth ignited and truth ignored. This morning's sermon is the people heard. I will put the emphasis on heard. That'll be an important word here. This is part 13 of our series in Joshua. Uh, the promise and the land, I think we probably have one or two sermons left. I guess we'll know more by the middle of this week. So let's take a look at the first way to address the truth and see how the truth is ignited in chapter 21 of Joshua. When we were last in Joshua, 
uh, three weeks ago, we saw the land was divided up and cities of refuge were established. There were six cities of refuge in all. They were strategically located throughout the entire region so that anybody anywhere in the region could access a city of refuge within less than 24 hours. Uh, so the city of refuge was a place of safety. It was a place of uh, grace. It was, it was not necessarily a place where a guilty person could find shelter, but it was a place where he would get a fair trial. Uh, and the, the, the town would determine whether or not they were guilty or not guilty. If they weren't, they could stay there. If they were guilty, they would be executed. So it was, it was a place where they were not the victim of the blood slayer. And uh, you can listen to the sermon from three weeks ago to hear what that's all about. So in Joshua 21, we see that they established the Levitical cities. Now, if you remember from Exodus and Numbers, or if you've been reading through that with us on a daily basis, the Levites were dedicated to serving the Lord uh, in the tabernacle and serving the priesthood. They were the ones who set the tabernacle up, tore it down. Uh, they were the ones who transported it, who maintained it, who kept it clean. Um, they were part of the priesthood, uh, but they didn't have the status of the high priest, not at this early stage of the Levitical priesthood. Their job was to serve and protect, protect the priest and the tabernacle, and indirectly, they served and protected the people as well by keeping them from getting too close to the tabernacle without being ceremonially cleansed. So the Levites had no inheritance in the land. So as everyone's moving into the promised land, the Levites don't get any of it. And the reason they don't get any of it is if you remember from our earlier teaching in Joshua, when Jacob said the, uh, the blessings over the 13 brothers, when he got to the Levites, he, he told them that they would not have an inheritance in the promised land because of sin that they had committed but that they would be scattered throughout the land. So uh, at the incident in Sinai, when uh, Moses is up getting the law up on the mountain and the people are down below waiting for him to come down, if you remember that whole party that took place and the golden calf was fashioned and uh, God vented his rage on the people for their sin, uh, Moses said, who will stand with me in this? And it was the Levites who stepped forward. So uh, for their faithfulness, they paid a very dear price. You can take a look at that. It's in Exodus chapter 32. But as a blessing, they became uh, the representatives for Israel's firstborn. That's kind of important because back at the Passover in Egypt, Israel's firstborn are dedicated to serving the Lord. In Exodus 32 at Sinai, the Levites become the substitute for the firstborn of Israel, and they're dedicated to serving the Lord. So, watch this. The Levites, the ones who become homeless uh, under the blessing and curse of Jacob, are redeemed for their faithfulness and now are promised cities in the promised land. We'll get to the details on that in just a second. So, the prophecy of Exodus 32 is carried out, the prophecy of Jacob is carried out, and God proves faithful again. So, all this happens in Joshua 21. So, and what happens with these Levitical cities is each tribe designated cities for the Levites to live in uh, according to Mo Moses' prophecy. Then, and, and indeed, they're, they're scattered throughout the land. There are 48 cities in all, and the cities of refuge are included amongst the Levitical cities. Now, it's important to understand this. 
the Levites do not own these cities. They are cities designated for the Levites to live in. So uh, I, I know if you read the text, it looks like perhaps they own them, uh, but you've got to get to the understanding of everything that was happening here. This is where the Levites would go and live. And they were given pasture land outside the cities. And they're, they're, matter of fact, uh, for about a three-quarters of a mile outside the city, they would have pasture land. Now, it's important to understand this. Pasture land, according to Jewish law, did not change hands as an inheritance. Pasture land was for general use outside the city. Uh, so the Levites, again, true to Jacob's promise, true to Jacob's blessing, do not have an inheritance. They just get to use the pasture land. It's set aside for them to use but they don't own it. So the prophecies are accurate, and, and they're, they're supported by the community that they live in, uh, just like the Aaronic priesthood is. So you have this, this, every generation of Levites depends upon the community that they're living in to support them and sustain them and their families. And if you follow their development, the Levitical priesthood, through the Old Testament, you'll see that their role becomes increasingly significant as they go on, and they quickly become ministers to the Lord and ministers to the people. So one of the things we should see in chapter 21 is that the Lord has given his people the land. He has spread them out all over a lot of the land, and then he's placed safe areas of the land in among them, and he has also placed in and among the people ministers. Ministers, men who are appointed and ordained by God to minister to the Lord and to the people, and the people in turn support and encourage the ministers that live in their community. So it's an early model for the modern church, how things worked back then. So Joshua 21 ends with this, starting with verse 41. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it, so it was with all these cities. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them the rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And in verse 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the houses of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now, we know, because we've been following their development, that Israel is not perfect. They had their flaws, just like you and me. They had their flaws. They had their shortcomings. But you know what? We also know that in spite of their shortcomings, Israel had a desire to please the Lord. You could say that their hearts were in the right place. And they have been about as obedient as men and women can be. Yes, they let their fears and their doubts get in the way, lay hold of them from time to time. But we shouldn't be too harsh on them on those fears and doubts, and I'll tell you why. Because God isn't. We find out right here that God is not harsh on them. At this point in their history, God counts them as obedient. They have acted on his promises in truth and in faith, and now they possess the promised land. Yes, there are pockets of resistance. They haven't occupied it all. That will happen come Solomon's time, but that'll be for another series. So what we need to see from this, brothers and sisters, is that 
their obedience has ignited the truth of what God said about them. It has started this, this flame of truth to rise up among them. And God's blessings are flowing freely among his people. Obedience ignites the truth, and the truth sets us free. Isn't that what we just saw in Israel? God sent a deliverer to them. They followed the deliverer out of Israel. He led them through the wilderness. He led them from slavery into the promised land, and now they're free. So we see God's blessing flow because they've been obedient, and God's truth is flowing among them. And along with God's truth comes what? God's blessing. They're experiencing this sweet spot in their relationship with God. But we need to understand this as well. That truth that they're experiencing is a fragile blessing. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be nourished. We have to actively pursue it. We're going to see that they're going to have to actively pursue it. We have to look no farther than chapter 22 of Joshua to see how fragile that truth is. Look what happens when the truth is ignored. We've seen what happens when the truth is ignited. God's blessings flow. Look what happens when the truth is ignored. In verses 1 through 8 of Joshua 22, all the fighting is done. There's peace in the land. This is a really good time. Joshua sends the tribes that were promised land on the eastern bank of the Jordan. He sends them home. Now, if you remember, again, from earlier, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh agreed to come across Jordan and fight with God's people, fight with their brothers and sisters until they were able to possess the, the promised land, only if they could go back and take the land that Moses had promised them which is on the eastern side of the Jordan. So you have nine and a half tribes living west of the Jordan, and pay close attention to this. They are what biblical scholars call the Cisjordan tribes, indicating they are on this side of the Jordan River. You have two and a half tribes living over on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. They are what we call the Transjordan tribes. They live on the other side of the river, so Joshua keeps his promise and sends the Transjordan tribes back with a blessing, with an abnomition to remain obedient. And significantly in verse 9, we hear that this land, Gilead as it was called, has been given to these two and a half tribes by God. God gave them the land. And this is significant. Everybody knew God gave them the land, and everybody was aware that they were going to go back. Then in verse 10, we see this. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of, and I want to get this right, imposing size. This is a huge altar. The Transjordan tribes, notice this, they build the altar on the Canaan side of the Jordan, not on their side, over on the western shore. And it is a huge altar. We see the phrase for, for immense size uh, used in Exodus 3 when we hear about the burning bush. And what it means is that this thing is built to attract a lot of attention. And the truth of the matter is, you could see this thing for miles. It was in the flat plain near the Jordan. Look what happens when the Cisjordan tribes, the tribes on the west, hear about this. 
and the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Now, I've tried to add some emphasis here, but you know what just happened. Someone raised an alarm. Someone come running into town, running into camp, began shouting, Look! They're building a giant altar. Somebody do something. Somebody stop them. We didn't know they were going to do this. And as usual, when the alarm sounds, trouble starts. Isn't that true? Isn't it true that, that when somebody goes, oh, there's something wrong. Everybody goes, what, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they begin reacting to it. Well, that's what happens right here. You see right in his words, all of a sudden, the Transjordan people, the people in the east, are the people of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the Cisjordan, the people in the west, are Israel. You can see the separation starts right there. And everything goes downhill from there. Now keep in mind, all that's happened up to this point is that the Cisjordan tribes have heard that an altar's being built. So in verse 12, it says, And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. These people are going to war. They're ready to kill. The whole nation gathers at Shiloh. It's about 20 miles from the, the border, uh, from the river. It's about 20 miles south of Shechem. And the nation's prepped for battle. What, 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 why are they so upset? What's got them so mad? Well, the Lord has designated one place for the sacrifices to, and, and for the worship to take place. And that place at the current time is in Shechem. Remember when we saw the tribes gather at Shechem? They placed the ark in the middle of the two mountains, Mount uh, Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and they pronounced blessings from Mount Gerizim and curses from Mount Ebal. Well, that was a place of worship. That was a place designated by, by the Lord. And, and you know, we, we kind of see a lesson in that, that there, there's one place where the sacrifice will be made, one place where the sacrifices are valid. It kind of points towards Jesus Christ. That's quite a bit further down the road. And now, now they find out that these people from beyond the Jordan are building their own altar, building another altar. And that's just not acceptable. And it, it, it doesn't seem to occur to anyone that the altar being built is not really in a very convenient place for them to use it. It's on the other side of the river from where they live. They don't seem to be thinking about that. I mean, we already know that the Jordan is a boundary and it, uh, an obstacle. So, to their credit, the Cisjordan tribes before going to battle, they send emissaries. Ten men, one from each tribe, representatives of the tribe, one priest, Phineas, son of Eleazar. And it's a chance to dialogue. But, but look at how the dialogue begins. The delegation says in verse 16, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. Catch that? What is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? It's not really a dialogue. 
It's a list of accusations. Uh, Look at it, the people of God. The whole congregation wants to know. Not you people that have done this terrible thing. They want to know why. They want to know why, not if you've breached the faith. They want to know why, not if you are no longer following the Lord. They want to know why, not if you are in rebellion against God. And in verse 17 through 20, the delegation goes on to say that Israel suffered enough from foolish sin. They're afraid that that sin, and this is important as well, the sin of the Transjordan tribes tribes will bring the wrath of God down on everybody. They said, you're going to get us all in trouble by what you're doing. Don't you remember how this works? They're so bold to suggest that the two and a half tribes should leave the land in the east, the land that they've been given, and move over to the western banks of the Jordan so that everyone can be safe, they say. We're really saying so that we can be safe. You're obviously not safe. Carefully, carefully consider what just happened here. The Cisjordan tribes, tribes in the west, know precious little about this altar. I mean, all they really know is that it's being built. I mean, they've heard that it was being built. They know it's very big. Everything else that they're doing is based on an assumption. One that rests on the idea that the Transjordan tribes are rebelling against God. They've assumed that the tribes are in rebellion. Now watch this. Once they make that assumption, look at this solution they offer. Let me give you a, a Kavakis paraphrase of verse 17. And tell me, tell me if this just isn't typical of how we all deal with each other. The the delegation says, just stop your sinning. Just stop doing that. Matter of fact, why don't you come over here and be like us? Why don't you come over here and live the way we live and do the things we do? You are obviously in trouble. You're obviously wrong. We're godly people, and you're not. You need to become like us in order to have a good relationship with God. You see, you see the error? Do you see the mistake that the Cisjordan tribes are making? As a matter of fact, they're making two pretty spectacular mistakes. Number one, you know, listen to this carefully. Because brothers and sisters, we, we, we are living in an angry time. We're, we're living at a time where there, there's more tension out there on the streets, in the media, sometimes in our homes, maybe than there ever has been before. So there are lessons for us to learn here, okay? So the first mistake they make is they make an assumption based on very little information. Somebody looked at Facebook and saw that the Transjordan tribes were building an altar and went, stop them, look, they're building an altar. There's a picture of it right here. They have almost no information, no verifiable information. Someone raised the alarm and everyone piled on. They're acting on too little information. No one stopped to consider that the people they're about to go to war with just risk their lives and their, and, and their families to help them take their new homes. 
No one stopped to think that God had given the Transjordan tribes their land just as he had given the Cisjordan tribes their land. Israel assumed that the Transjordan tribes were in rebellion. Assumed that they were unthankful to the Lord. They assumed that somehow in the 20 miles from the time they left Shiloh to the time they got to the shores of the Jordan, that they had become an ungodly people. Pretty incredible assumption. And what they were ignoring was the truth. They had ignored everything that God had said about them up to this point. They ignored the truth of their God, listen, and embraced the truth of their assumptions. They ignored the truth of their God and embraced the truth of their emotions. And look what ignoring God's truth caused the Cisjordan tribes to do. It caused them to become angry. It made him mad. Scripture. Every time I say this, I get an email from somebody. Scripture says anger is murder. Doesn't it? If you're angry at your brother, you're guilty of murdering him. These people are angry. Here's what David says about anger. Listen to this, Psalm 37, 8. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Anger tends only to evil. It only produces evil. Look what it produced in the ten tribes. You can see it there in the dialogue. It caused them to become arrogant. It caused them to become prideful. It caused them to become judgmental and self-righteousness. It caused them, you know what it caused them to do? You read the end of the chapter. Caused them to embarrass themselves. Their anger causes them to embarrass themselves. They embarrass the reputation of God, who's called them one people and told them he would protect them and provide for them, and they embarrass themselves. Now that becomes very clear as the Transjordan tribes respond to these these assumptions respond to these accusations. That's in Joshua 22, 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know. It wasn't, listen, they began praising God. They began proclaiming God's greatness. They begin calling upon the Lord. They say, God knows, you don't. So, the, 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 for, uh, let, what is it, I'm sorry. If it was in rebellion or in breach of the faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. If we're in rebellion, kill us for building an altar to turn away from the following of the Lord. If we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No. They said, look, we didn't build this altar to worship. We didn't build this altar to do sacrifices. We're not trying to do what you're doing over there in Shechem. May the Lord himself take vengeance if that's what we did, they said. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? 
And down in verse 27, it says, we're building the altar, but to be a witness between us and you. But to be a symbol of the fact that we're part of you. We're part of the nation of Israel. And they're probably thinking, and it's a good thing we did. Look what's happening right now. You're calling us those people. You're calling yourselves Israel. Maybe it's a good thing we're building this altar. And then in verse 28, we see this incredible thing. And we thought this should be said to us, our descendants, in time to come. We should say, behold, the copy. (laughs) The copy of the altar of the Lord. I did a lot of checking on this word in Hebrew. You know what it means? It means a copy. Do you understand what they're saying? They're saying, look at the altar. Doesn't it look like the one in Shechem? (laughs) Yes, it's big. But we needed to be big because we needed to be a reminder that when we look across the river, We see this symbol of our unity. We want our children to know that we're part of God's people. We want our children to know that God gave us this land. And he put this river between us for a reason, but we're still part of Israel. It's a copy. It's not meant to take the place. It's meant as a memorial, as a uh, reminder. And I repeat again, we're not doing it for sacrifices. We're not doing to place offerings on it. Then they say in, in verse 29 that, that uh, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Do you know where his tabernacle stands? Shechem. Shechem. Transjordan tribes are totally misunderstood. They're building a copy of the true altar. And they, and they put it in a place that would make it nearly impossible for them to use, but equally as impossible for them to miss. It would loom over them every day. It's a reminder that they're part of Israel. For them at this particular moment, it's a reminder that they're part of the Israel that wants to either kill them or conform them at this point. Huh. Look how many times the two and a half tribes invoke the name of the Lord in nine verses. It appears 21 times. This is an impassioned statement of faith. It's an acknowledgement of who God is. So the first mistake the Cisjordan tribes, tribes in the West make is to make a decision based on little or no information. They've made a mistake based on fake news haven't it you know I think we all need to open our eyes and realize that all the news is fake not just the news that we disagree with <laughs> but that's what they did they've, they've heard fake news and they've acted on it they make an emotional decision and if you look closely you see that the decision they make by the way makes them look superior makes them look pretty good It actually feeds their egos. makes them feel better about themselves. We're godly. They're not. It makes them feel right. And it allows them to judge the people that they're looking at as being wrong. So that's the first mistake they make. Here's the second mistake. And this one should come as a surprise, but it's there. 
they, they never stop and pray about what they're doing. They never seek the Lord. They simply react. They haven't learned that lesson yet. They haven't learned to go to God before taking up their swords and starting to swing them in battle. And once again, they're embarrassed. They find themselves trying to operate apart from God. Now they've got egg on their face. They're looking rather foolish. And if you look at the situation closely, you'll see that those Transjordan tribes are actually acting in a far more godly manner than Israel is, the Cisjordan tribes. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? The one who's accusing these people of being ungodly are actually acting in a more ungodly fashion. So how does a delegation respond? You know what? Um, one thing that we've seen is Israel stumbles. God's people don't always do it right, but when they get it right, they're spectacular. They're mature enough to admit they were wrong. We see in verses 30 through 34, we see some humility. We see reconciliation. Ultimately, because of humility and reconciliation, we see unity again. The gigantic altar becomes a symbol of people who are one. Whereas everybody thought it was a symbol of division, it becomes a symbol of unity. So there's our two ways to address the truth. We saw truth ignited by obedience in chapter 21. We see truth ignored, which leads to anger, which leads to embarrassment in chapter 22. What have we learned about ourselves in all this? Well, the lesson should be obvious. This should be plain to us. In a day when most people get their information from headlines, not actually reading an article, but looking at a headline, or getting a sound bite, or getting an email, it must be right, I saw it on Facebook. It was on Instagram, too. I got an email that said this was accurate, so I'm going to act on this. In a day when that is far too common, in a day when it becomes more difficult to tell the lies from the truth, in a day when it's just so easy to feel right and superior, when it's so easy to allow that to stoke our anger and allow the anger to lead us, when it's so easy to allow too little information to store our emotions and cause us to react, do we need to remember the truth, brothers and sisters, and not ignore it? We need to know where to go to get the truth. And the truth is, that you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, if he's your Lord and Savior, you and I are called to be fruit bearers. Galatians 5, through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit which resides in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That's a question for us today. Have we crucified the flesh? Have we crucified our passions and our desires and embraced the desires of God? Do we react in anger? Think about this as you go through the week this week. What makes you angry? What makes you angry the way they were angry? You know, we're not immune to this. Somebody say Amen. You know, is, is it sports? Anybody getting angry over a game? Is it huh, politics? Oh, they can't say that. 
It makes me so mad. Is it school? Is it work? Is it your kids? Is it your parents? Is it your spouse? Do they make you angry? I'll guarantee you this. If you get angry over your situation, you'll be drawn into making the same two mistakes that Israel made. You'll make decisions based on too little information. You'll act without praying. Then your anger, your anger will take control. Your anger will cause you to be prideful, self-righteous, judgmental, arrogant, and more. And brothers and sisters, we need that fruit of the Spirit right now more than we have ever needed it before. I know some of you are not angry. I get it. But I know that the minute we walk out that door, everything we are subjected to is going to try to stir that emotion in us. Everything we are subjected to, you pick up a newspaper, you listen to your radio, you read your email, I don't care what you pick up. There's something in there that will say, you know what, you're right and everybody else is wrong. And you need to do something about this. And the minute you allow that anger to speak out, you divorce yourself from the fruit of the Spirit. You remove yourself from God's protection and His provision. And you deny yourself the greater blessing of walking in His peace and His joy. Wouldn't it be better if we learned from Israel here? Wouldn't it be better if the moment we felt that anger rise up, we got down on our knees and prayed, God, help me be a good bearer of fruit. Fill me, Father, in this moment with love and joy and peace. Give me patience. Give me kindness. Give me goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control so that I can be a witness to your glory, to a world that's filled with tension and anger. Help me be a peacemaker. Now, that prayer doesn't work for you. Try this one. God, examine my heart. Deliver me from examining the hearts of the people around me. Examine my heart. Look in my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. That, loved ones, that one will ignite truth in us. And that truth will set us free. It'll set us free from our assumptions. Set us free from our anger. Free from our emotions. Free to be messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why we're here. Jesus died to make us agents of transformation, not agents of our issues. So, that's what we should have learned about ourselves. What do we learn about God? We learn that God is truth. God is truth. His word tells us so. And we see it, we see it in these two chapters. When God's people, Israel, seek him with all their hearts, they're blessed mightily. When we seek God and his truth, we, we experience blessing. When we ignore the truth, when we ignore God, they struggle. When we ignore God, we struggle. And the choice before us today is blessing or struggle. Ignite the truth or ignore the truth. 
It's the same question whether you're a believer or not. Let me explain what I'm talking about. For those of you who have not yet received salvation, the truth is that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. And you can continue to struggle in them, or you can confess that you're a sinner, which is the truth. You're all, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. You can repent from your sins and call upon Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And I promise you, I promise you, if you do that, and you do that sincerely, and you mean it with all of your heart, if you want him to be Lord of your life, the truth will ignite in you and start burning away that old person and rebuilding a new person inside you. Does that sound good? If you're born again, it's the same question. Do you ignite the truth or do you ignore it? If you ignite it, you find peace. You find joy. You find a way to make through tough times. And even find contentment in them. Paul did. And if you ignore it, well, if you're truly saved, I got to tell you something, if you continue to ignore it, and never turn towards the truth, I think you need to ask yourself some questions about your eternal destiny. But if you ignore God's truth and you're truly saved, you know what? I'll see you in heaven. But I'll tell you this, your road to get there is going to be a rocky one. It's going to be a tough one. You can smooth that road out by repenting from your anger and your discontent and your impatience. And all those things that stand between you and your Father in heaven and a deeper walk with Him. Brothers and sisters, we are changed. We are being changed. We can fight it or we can ignite it. And I'm here today to tell you that the fire, the fire is better than the fury. The fire that refines is better than the fury that consumes. And we can all taste the sweetness of the refining fire of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's our beautiful Savior. He gave his life up so that we could become light to the world. He gave his life up so that we can show the world how to be patient and loving and gentle and kind. And all we have to do is surrender ourselves to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the truth of who you are. We thank you and praise you for that absolute truth of who you are, Father. Help us to embrace it. Help us to set aside our agenda and our feelings, Father, and embrace the lost world. Father, the, the, the Muslims aren't our enemy. They're our, our harvest field. The people on the other side of the aisle are not our enemy, Father. We are witnesses to them. The answer to these problems is not fighting the answer to these problems is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us be agents of that gospel. Pour it through us. We have experienced the love and grace of an awesome Savior. Help us see his beauty, Father, and become vessels of it in Jesus' name. Amen.